As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast, where we explore how to center our lives and our leadership in the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ. In the midst of the disruptive cultural shockwaves of the 21st century. Join us as we learn to take the love of God seriously as the force that holds all of us and everything together. If you're loving this podcast, we invite you to go deeper and partner with us in our work by joining the Gravity Commons, our online community of practice for connecting and learning together. As a member of the Gravity Commons, you get access to live podcast recordings with upcoming guests, as well as other opportunities to connect and learn together with us in real time. Including learning labs, member meetups, discussion boards, online courses, and our practitioner podcasts. Go to gravityleadership.com slash commons to find out more. See you in the commons. Vegetables. Heard of them? Uh, yes, love them. Yeah, I watched VeggieTales, so okay. sure. All right. Yeah. yeah, so if you're like most kids, you grew up not liking vegetables. And if right. you're like most adults, you like more vegetables than you used to. So my question is, mm-hmm. what's a vegetable that you despised as a kid? that you really like now? Brussels sprouts. Hey, you took mine. Aha! Okay, you know why? Blackened? Yeah, like blackened, like roasted with a little oil, you know? Oh, like, there's yeah. There's a lot of ways to like... Like uh, pan, you know, pan seared, pan fried, like... Those, that's good too, yeah. yeah. I've heard though, you know what I heard about Brussels sprouts? Because most of the time you think your taste buds change or you, you mature in your taste or whatever. But I've actually heard that the Brussels sprouts that we have now are sweeter than the ones that we used to eat when what? we were kids. Like they've actually bred them differently to be better tasting. So I think they actually do taste better than they used to, but hmm. I'm not sure. We'd have to like do a like a uh, like a referendum with the kids these days. Do kids <laughs> these days like Brussels sprouts or do they do they all hate them? Well, when we go to sometimes we go to frou-frou restaurants. And Christy, I do want to hear about your veggie, oh, but I'm frou-frou. just really I'm really interested in I think it's cuz it's like 1:36 Eastern time and I haven't had lunch yet. And so my mm, mouth is watering now. Yeah. Uh, um, no, I I was just, thinking about I was thinking about the fact that we go to frou-frou restaurants and <laughs> And they have most frou frou restaurants will have as one of their sides mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. candied cranberry uh, mm-hmm. ginger Brussels sprouts, you know, or whatever. Right. And and honey, then they're almost like honey spicy. Oh, they're so good. I think yeah. my kids like them. Um, I think the reason I hated them as a kid is because my dad would boil them in water for thirty minutes, <laughs> and then put them on my plate. Right. No Without salt. salt. Not, Just nothing. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I may have told you this yeah. before, but my hack for veggies as a kid was to swallow them whole. Ew, uh, that's and that's a big thing to swallow. Yep. Well, yeah, Brussels sprouts. They hurt. Get a, get they hurt going down and coming. I mean, they hurt all around. <laughs> uh, 
but but I didn't have tasting to them. I didn't have to taste them. Um, the other thing I did is I had two younger sisters, and there was a running gag for oh ten years where I would throw my vegetables behind the fridge <laughs> from the dinner table, where. Where we, I would work for a long time. Throw them. I, so I, I swear I did not think about this when I asked you this question to open this podcast. But I would, it would be like this running gag or bit to get my mom to leave the table for something. <laughs> and as soon as she would turn her head or leave the table, I would just start trebuchet chucking vegetables behind the fridge. And like they would, they would miss, they'd be all over the place. <laughs> Anyway, and then they get moldy, and oh my gosh, finds them eventually. That's I so gross. Probably threw thousands of vegetables behind the fridge. <laughs> not even kidding. This was not a one-time event. This happened multiple times a week. Oh my goodness, uh, that's amazing. It is amazing. That is amazing. It's amazing. My mom did not kill me. Let's just be honest. <laughs> Christy, you asked that about, question. Yeah. And, do you, how about honestly, your vegetable? Do you have a vegetable? The first, the first thing I thought of was like. The two vegetables I, I didn't like as a kid and I still don't like. That's okay. the first thing I thought of. Okay. Well, and that's what are those? lima beans and okay. radishes. Oh, I'm like well, either I'm one. with you on that. I'm with but you I, on that. But at Fufu restaurants, radishes is like the new Brussels sprouts. They're like figuring out ways to like really? make them and people are spending like $14 on radishes. I'm like, oh, heck no. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want You're that. Anyway, but the vegetable that I didn't like as a kid and now I absolutely love is zucchini. Oh, oh nice. Okay. Yeah. Pulled okay. it out of my, actually not mine, but I'm taking care of my neighbor's house and pulled out a ginormous zucchini this week and made zucchini bread, muffins, and made it for dinner too. Like just roasted it. Super yummy. Okay. Mm. You can put it in bread. It's very versatile as, it totally uh, as, is. as, yep. as a vegetable goes. I'm yep. glad we had this talk, fam. Yeah, way to go. Way to go. <laughs> has nothing to do with our yeah, yeah, you've tuned into the Vegetable Talk podcast <laughs> next week. Anyway, uh, no, you've tuned into the Gravity Leadership podcast, friends, and uh, I think you know why you're here. You want to hear this next episode that we have with Wade Mullen. Uh, we interviewed Wade M- Mullen. We talked uh, a bit uh, with him about his book, Something's Not Right, Decoding the Hidden Tactics of Abuse and Freeing Yourself from Its Power. We talked about the themes of this book. This book is a couple years old, mm-hmm. um, but just talked in general with Wade about um, his observations about um, power, um, abusive power, and um, a lot of stuff that is, you know, for the past few years, it's been uh, high on the consciousness for uh, a lot of the world, but especially the Christian world. Um, it seems like every week, there's new news about someone who has abused their power. So anyway, uh, Wade's got a lot of uh, great insight, um, both from a like an academic standpoint. He's done a lot of study of this, um, but he has personal experience as well that um, I think helps to inform some of that. So um, Matt and I did this interview. Matt, uh, what do you what do you remember from this? What do you like? What was something you appreciated about this interview? I had just put on body spray before this interview, and I smelled really good. You remember that? Or is no, that I, I mean, that's just a joke, right? That's most days. You had no... Yeah. I think, it's, chances are, you, that was happening while I was talking to Wade. You put on the body spray right before the podcast? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Just, just right yeah. uh, on my... You want to smell good for a podcast. Just on my uh, my uh, my mustache, just so I can smell mm-hmm. it. It's just for me. Okay. No just, one else... Yeah, because I was going to say nobody else can smell it. Just for me. Yeah. Just for me. Yeah. Those chemicals, we digress. Those chemicals, yeah. I'm sure, are good <laughs> for digress. my body. do digress. I think that's Christy's way of saying, get on with it, Matt. Yeah, buddy. Get on with it. Um, let's chop it up. Yeah. Uh, what I, what I remember from this interview is I wish I had this book 10 years ago because I Mm. think I would have extracted myself from abusive situations much sooner. Ugh, dude, dude. Mm. Yep. I mean, Wade probably wishes he had it 10 years ago too. (laughs) (laughs) Jeez, Wade. uh, Come on. Why couldn't you have written and learned about this before you went through uh, your own abusive situation? Anyway, uh, yes, it's hel- it's helpful. Uh, it's helpful stuff to just keep learning about this, um, man, for, for so many reasons. So, mm-hmm. <sighs> so many reasons. Well, I think that's about good enough, eh? Should yeah. we get into it? It's yeah. September. It's September. It's what what season? What does that mean, Christy? It's National Pumpkin Podcast Spice Awareness Latte. Month. Oh. 
PSO. No, but I got one this week, guys. You I got did. a pumpkin spice latte? Yeah. Yes. And it's yeah. not because pumpkins are my favorite vegetable, but oh. I should have said that because I love pumpkin spice lattes. Pumpkin, But you didn't when you were a kid because they didn't have them. I don't ever remember eating pumpkin as a kid. No? Or actually, I don't I, think one I did. time. I mean, except pumpkin pie, right? <laughs> actually, okay. Sorry. I know that people want to get into it, but. Christy, Real quick. We, we digress. Are we good digressing? We, we again? do, but Matt okay, and I have a memory with pumpkins. Oh. And I don't know if you remember this, but Matt, <laughs> we we together met in this like kind of group, community group with s- several couples. And the girls got together and we got those little baby pumpkins okay. and we carved them out. Yeah. So mm-hmm. they were like miniature, like personal size kind mm-hmm. of. And we made pumpkin soup out of it. Oh yes, I remember. Me and I remember this. Kimmy and your wife Sharon, and anyway, and uh, and we made the pumpkin soup. We we're so proud of ourselves. It looked awesome because we poured the soup back into like the little miniature pumpkins, and we put and them you on the ate table. Pumpkin soup out of pumpkin. It, it looked carcasses. like Martha Stewart. It was awesome, except for we all took one bite and nearly threw up and ordered Domino's pizza. <laughs> <laughs> So if uh, if you would have had Instagram back then, you could have at least Instagrammed it, you know, and, and uh, yeah, just been like pumpkin, pumpkin oh, soup man. inside of our pumpkin bowls. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, anyway. All right. All right. Do we need to digress anymore? Anybody else uh, have a little digression? No, no, <sighs> no, no, I think that's enough. <laughs> I think, I think now we should get right. out of the way and let Wade. La, yeah. Let, let Wade teach us. Finally. So, Finally. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Finally, we can let, allow Wade to teach us. Yeah. Uh, take it away, Wade. Wade Mullen joins us today on the Gravity Leadership Podcast. He's a professor, researcher, and advocate working to help those trapped in the confusion and captivity that mark abusive situations. He does that primarily through his organization, Pellucid Consulting. They uh, do consulting for individuals and organizations uh, offering assessments for um, people who misuse authority and power. Uh, His personal experiences and ongoing research enable him to write with both care and expertise. Wade and his wife, Sarah, I'm sorry, Sarita, live in Lancaster, Pennsylvania with their four children. Wade, did I miss anything there? Nope. That's about, that's about right. Uh, nice to meet you both. It's an honor yeah. to be on the show with you. Yeah. It's great to, great to uh, meet you, Wade. I, I too have four kids. So I'm always, my ears always oh. perk up when I'm like, Oh, a fellow, a fellow. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. There's a, like, there should be a name for a club for um, us, the, us uh, <laughs> couples with four kids. Um, yeah. I don't know what that would be, but anyway. Glad, glad to glad to have a fellow four kids, fellow father of four kids. Yes, yes. Yeah, anyway, likewise. Yeah, we're chatting with Wade today about his book "Something's Not Right," decoding the hidden tactics of abuse and freeing yourself from its power. Wade, we've talked about abuse and we talk about power a lot here at Gravity Leadership and um, what it's for and how it gets misused. Maybe tell us a little bit of the backstory of how this book came to be, uh, how and why did you become interested in this topic of abuse? Yeah, I was uh, working on staff at a church for about seven to eight years. And near the end of my time there, I'd say in the last two years, became aware of ways in which people in the church had been experiencing, you know, abuse and mistreatment and decided to do something about that, report that, um, advocate for those who were um, alleging abuse and then ran into resistance and discovered, you know, from leadership above me, those in positions of authority with the ability and responsibility to act, just a, a, a resistance that shocked me and saddened me. And then as a result of advocating, you know, and, and choosing to say something's not right, you know, something <laughs> needs to be done, yeah. became a target myself and, and went through just a very difficult experience, ended up walking away from the church that we were at and the people that mm-hmm. we loved and 
a home that was owned by the church and a livelihood because our conscience would no longer allow us to to remain there after having done all that we felt like we could do to bring about change and to shed light on the situation. And so we just went through a very difficult period of pain and loss. And at the same time, I was going through a, a doctoral program at Capital Seminary and Graduate School, which is, a, which is a division of Lancaster Bible College, and was getting my PhD in leadership studies and had decided to focus on how organizations, specifically evangelical organizations, respond to crises. And there's different types of crises, and at some point landed on one type of crisis, which is the one probably most people are familiar with, uh, a scandal, or to use more academic language, an image-threatening event. And so decided to write my dissertation on how evangelical organizations use what are called impression management strategies in the wake of an image-threatening event. And I discovered as I was doing all of this academic research and looking at all of these cases that there was such a clear overlap between the impression management strategies that organizations use in the wake of an image-threatening event and the impression management strategies that individual abusers use in an attempt to maintain control and maintain secrets and to escape accountability. And so that was just a huge light bulb moment. And so I would say the book is a result of two streams. One is, you know, my own personal experience and having walked through some of this and, and experiencing a lot of these impression management tactics firsthand and seeing the impact and the damage that it can cause. And then the other stream being the academic research. And so those two streams kind of converged into, into this book. Hmm. That's fascinating. Yeah. Um, well, I'd, lo- I'd love to get into some of what you discovered and some of the you know, some of the tactics um, that uh, that a lot of our listeners have probably encountered. Uh, Matt and I have encountered these kinds of people, these kinds of institutions. Um, one of the dynamics um, that I notice that is that the further away you are from an abusive person, the sort of the more you can sort of benefit from them, or the more that they seem, you know, what I mean, like if they write a great book. Like abusive people can write good books, right? Mm-hmm. They can write good content. They can, you know, create helpful you know, theology or whatever. Um, but the closer you get, uh, the sort of the more damage uh, is done. But at the same time, there is this other dynamic that kicks in that the closer you get to an abusive person, sometimes there's also this feeling of being caught up in their power, caught up in their charisma. Um, and sort of it, it, there's this dual dynamic happening of damage, but also intoxication that sort of blinds you to the damage that's being done. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that dynamic, um, you know, how being close to an abusive person can be damaging and intoxicating at the same time. Yeah, I do think one of the streams that or threads that runs throughout all of the different sets of tactics that I talk about in the book Mm -hmm is self-promotion. And so you'll Mm -hmm. find the promotion of the self or the promotion of the organization early on, uh, especially more so when you look back in hindsight and you've gone through a lot of suffering and you can, you can then see, all right, I remember, you know, in the first interactions that I had with so-and-so or with the organization, yeah, they, they really seem to talk a lot about themselves in ways that um, was braggadocious and um, self-centered and self-promoting. But I found that that self-promoting language can be traced throughout all of the different phases of an abusive situation. And so even when somebody is being confronted for their own behavior and they're giving a defense, there's a, there's a self-promotion that's, that's even worked into the defense. And then if they're, is a successful cover-up. I talk about in the book how there's in the Latin in this last stage, there's this, this attempt to demonstrate to an audience that they're still legitimate, that yes, mm-hmm. this happened, um, we've dealt with it, and then they're going to demonstrate why they're still legitimate. So mm-hmm. it, it kind of circles back to self-promotion. Yes. So I think there's a self-promotion that runs throughout. And and that's the often the part that most people are going to see and experience. 
And if they're not aware of what's behind the curtain, uh, the intimidation, let's say, that a few people mm-hmm. experience, mm-hmm. Uh, the the actual uh, offenses that maybe only one person has suffered. Right. So the majority, you know, people aren't going to see that what's behind the curtain, but they are seeing a lot of the self promotion, and and because that's all they see, maybe they don't have any reason to doubt it or think that it's it's deceptive or Mm -hmm. there's some um desire for uh greed or power that's that that that, that's behind that and then i think too that sometimes we're we're drawn to that self-promoting individual because we want to be up we want to be a part of the the glory that's reflected off of that person or that organization so there's a there's a tactic called uh, burging, which stands for oh. basking in reflected glory, in which, <laughs> in which an individual who's yeah. self who's promoting themselves or an organization can do this, will will name drop or talk about their connections to other people or other events that they know the audience views highly in an effort to bask in the reflected glory of you know, let's right. say a politician who came to their church to speak right. or, or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And I think that can happen to everyday people who are, yeah. who are being drawn to a self-promoting leader organization where maybe we get sucked into basking in, 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 in the reflected glory that's coming off of that person. Yeah. And so we feel good by being close to somebody yes. who is, who appears to be very succe- successful. Yeah. I, I'm impressed by impressed uh, by the how much of this is focused on uh, image, right? Even the even the the research that you talked about at the beginning there, where you're like impression management tactics and image threatening event, like it all has to do with uh, it all has perception. to do with the image perception mm-hmm. rather than the realities. And there there is this relentless focus in abusive systems and with abusive people in maintaining image, in maintaining um, some kind of picture or perception rather than dealing with what's actually happening. It is. I think that's such a, a powerful dynamic that's at work. Um, mm. the, the impressions that people are attempting to to manage are all about this this image that they have of themselves or the organization they lead not even that it's the image they want other people to see i've been reading this book called tinkers um which is just a fascinating book it's really really well written i forget the name of the author but i've been reading it this week and just yesterday came across a section in that book where the author is describing one of the one of the characters and the character is a you know is a father who's going through a lot and and he's experiencing a lot of remorse as a result of what he's going through and and describes how it wasn't for him it wasn't so much that he felt remorse over how he viewed himself and his situation, but how his wife viewed him. That's what was causing him so much remorse. And so it's, mm-hmm. a, I think in it, for many people, it's, it's that image that they are projecting and they're trying then to maintain dominates their lives. Mm-hmm. And then it dominates their interactions when they're called to give an account for their own behavior. They cannot surrender the need to maintain and protect that image. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder, wait, if we can back up a bit because um, timeline wise, was it eight, 10 years ago when all this stuff started going down at your church and you started and you had to leave? Is that, was it about eight, 10 years ago? I believe so. It would have been around the year 2017. Oh, okay. So that's like five years ago. Yeah. Yeah. 2016, 2017. Yeah. Like so, yeah. so, so, so uh, Ben and I have also been a part of uh, an organization that had an, an abusive situation. And I remember being in that situation, not having language for what I was experiencing, the harm. I, I, I couldn't identify that harm was happening. Um, I didn't have language like narcissist or um, ab- abusive 
behavior or gaslighting or, or those kinds of things. Can can you maybe help us? When did you begin to? How did you begin to name this as bad? Right, because the the system itself that you were in obviously didn't see it as bad. Uh, what, what was it? A, how did you? Un, how did you get the the realization that this was not good? I think it started with seeing how the the need to maintain an image yeah. was dominating con- conversations. I think when you're in it, maybe you don't see that as ab- as abnormal. You think, well, yeah, there is a need to to maintain a good reputation uh, or to put forth an appearance of strength. But as I was becoming more and more familiar with with what's wrong with that approach and how it can and how it can lead to a lot of deceptive uh, behavior. Yeah. I became more um, attuned to it. So I became more aware of when that was framing the conversation Hmm. and when decisions were being made on the basis of how this is going to make us look, how this is going to make the church look. So I became, I think, initially more and more aware of that. And then became more and more aware of how specific tactics are used to accomplish that goal. And and so just to give a very specific example, there was at one point where a leader said, well, we're not going to bring in an outside person. That was something that I was advocating for. We're not going to bring in an independent external third party because that would communicate to everyone else that we have failed. <laughs> so it wasn't even about right or wrong, justice, right or wrong, truth. Yeah. It was about how, what, how is this going to make us look? Yeah. And then um, as I was becoming more and more a target, I became increasingly aware of how tactics like intimidation, mm-hmm. tactics like condemning the condemner were being used against me <laughs> and had an opportunity then to actually name that when I saw it happening and being in the meeting and saying, okay, here's, here's what I'm hearing. And here's what I think is going on. Here's what I think you're attempting to do. And that was very empowering for me on the one hand, on the other hand, it was, it was risky and there's a lot of fear attached to doing that, but it, but naming it was, was, was critical. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yes. Yeah. And I, I think that's the gift and the beauty of this book, Wade, is that you, you're, you help us understand all these tactics and strategies that abusive people use so that we can actually name what's happening to us and also then say no to it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you have this middle section of your book where you talk about how abusive people, they dismantle our inner world and our external world. Um, ben and I have talked about this before as a, uh, a reality distortion field that, that you, you mm. start to doubt your perception about what's, what's happening in me what's going on. and what's going on out there. I wonder if you could maybe share one or two ways that this happens, one or two tactics that abusive people use to do that? I think one way it happens uh, is the abusive individuals seek to disconnect you from sources of understanding of people in your life who do have insight and are speaking truth into, let's say, the situation that you're going through. So it could be a therapist who's providing sources of understanding. It could be uh, a book that somebody has read that's describing their situation or um, the theology that their church ascribes to, right? And I, and if that represents a threat to the abusive individual and the world that that abusive individual is trying to create for the person who's being targeted, the person who's under their control, 
then they might seek to disconnect that person from those sources by typically um, minimizing the the need for that. Oh, well, you don't really need mm-hmm. therapy. Uh, that's not really going to help you. Or seeking to discredit, you know, that that source of understanding. Um, yeah. And so there's all different ways in which the abusive individual might attempt to to cut a person off from those external mm-hmm. supports. And so, and that can then ripple out into, into other ways in which a person's external world, um, it could be then family members who express concern or mm-hmm. friends and, or it could be an education Well, you don't need to go and get a degree. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have everything that you need, right? here um i'll teach you i'll coach you you don't need to right so Mm -hmm. there's all these different ways in which somebody can find that their external world is slowly being pulled away from them Mm -hmm. and what's happening is the 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 world that the abusive individual is wanting to create for people under their control that becomes more and more that person's experience but it's a world that's defined only by the abusive individual and it happens kind of slowly and often without somebody noticing what's happening until they look up around them mm-hmm. and they wonder how they got in the situation that they're in mm-hmm. hi my name is jill brown and i'm from midland texas I have been in a gravity leadership cohort for the past year and a half. I am not employed by a church, but I was interested in spiritual transformation, so I decided to join a group. At times, my life had felt like I was operating out of a fragmented, achievement-driven, broken place. But during these weekly Zoom calls, the gravity training has helped me integrate and embody God's love in my life, and I have a greater sense of this wholeness to share with others. If you've ever felt like there was something missing in your understanding of God, or if you are curious about how God shows up in your everyday life, check out Gravity Leadership and see if it's for you. To find out more about Gravity Leadership Academy, visit gravityleadership.com slash academy. It's fascinating to me how much of this I'm still on this image thing. It's fascinating to me how much of this revolves around image. Like when you said that, you know, if, if there's some sort of source of understanding outside the abusive system, the abusive individual, um, they seek to, that, that feels like a threat to the abusive person. Right. But in, in essence, it's not a threat to that abusive person. Like best thing that could happen to them would be to confront what they're doing and, and repent, right? And, mm-hmm. and be healed and, you know, and fi- figure out why they're doing this. And uh, they probably have abusive kind of relationships in their past. So it's actually not a threat. What it's a threat to is the image that this abusive person is trying to project out into the world. Um, and I know this is a big feature of narcissism, right? Um, this, this was a big part of my learning that really helped me understand, like, how these systems work. Um, was how how much uh, narcissists are not in love with themselves. They are in love with an image of themselves that they are trying to project out into the world. I, I don't know if, um, I guess I don't know how much you know about kind of narcissism and that kind of thing, but I'm wondering where the overlap is here between, I would say all narcissists are probably abusive people, but there's so much in what you're describing about abusive people in general that also seems to apply to narcissism. I'm wondering if there's an overlap there, or if you've thought about that, or uh, if that's even a helpful kind of way of, of thinking about these things. Because I'm, I'm just hearing a lot of overlap, I guess, in ways I've heard narcissism described and what you're talking about with every abusive individual. I think there is a lot of overlap, and, and, and I'm really grateful for the work of Diane Langberg, the work of Chuck DeGroote, yep. and others who are informing and educating the church about narcissism and narcissistic systems. Mm-hmm. I do believe just based on what I've read and um, I'm not an expert on narcissism, but I, I, I do believe that narcissism exists on a spectrum. And so I interacted some with, 
with some uh, Dutch researchers a few years ago who, st- who have studied narcissism among pastors. And one of the things that you know they argue is that there's there's everyday narcissism, which they would describe as self-esteem. And you know, there if you think of narcissism just as self-focus, there's a there's there's a degree to which that is necessary. Yeah. Uh, but on the other end of the spectrum is narcissistic personality di- disorder right. um, and right. something pathological. Mm-hmm. And then there's there's everything in between, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. And yeah. and I think it's helpful to to understand where um, where narcissism kind of fits into a situation because even if you're not able to diagnose somebody, somebody doesn't have a diagnosis. You just right, you can't right. go there and say, well, no. this person has 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 NPD. Right. Yeah. I think it's helpful though to understand whether or not narcissism is is playing a role in the system, playing a, a role in mm-hmm. the situation, because that's going to give you, I think, a little bit more realistic expectations. Mm-hmm. And so you might then understand that a narcissist, a narcissistic individual is unlikely to apologize. It's, yeah. un, it's unlikely mm-hmm. that they're going to acknowledge what's true. Yeah. You keep fighting for that, but yeah. it's unlikely that that's going to happen, or it's unlikely mm-hmm. that you're going to receive the empathy that yeah. you need. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's where it can be helpful for okay. someone who's in the situation and they are expecting if they if they bring something to the system, right, or to leadership, mm-hmm. that there's going to be an ethical, empathetic response, because these are people who are following after Christ, who are, Mm -hmm. who are shepherds. Surely when they find out about this pain and this hurt and this trauma, that they're going to respond in the way that Jesus would respond. But if you're, if you're dealing with narcissism, then the experience is going to be the opposite. I think one of the disorienting things is when people go to the shepherd and they expect a shepherd's response yeah. and they 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 expect somebody to respond with light and with care and concern but then they experience the exact opposite mm-hmm. i mean it's it it's 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 a real betrayal and so i think all yeah. of this work that Diane Langberg's doing Chuck DeGroat's mm-hmm. doing is helping those who have experienced that to understand okay maybe there's narcissism that that I've run into. And that might explain why this was, this happened the way it did, or maybe the people that I'm seeking uh, solutions from, maybe there's narcissism at work and, and I need to just be aware of that. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. Uh, And I'm glad you brought up apologies as well, because that's, that's one of the, uh, one of the things about uh, that, that you, you talk about that, um, uh, abusive people try to get past the harm they've done without really repenting, without really uh, repairing, without really caring about, you know, um, building those bridges back. Um, and so this is, I mean, it's almost comical sometimes the apologies that you see, you know, from politicians or uh, churches or pastors who've been caught uh, in abuse or accused of abuse. Um, they're not really apologies, right? It's like a sorry, not sorry kind of uh, an apology. Um, and I wonder if you could just help us, uh, you know, and I like, I don't think I'm an abusive person, you know, I hope I'm not. Um, but I use, I, I'm still learning how to make a good apology. I think sometimes, sometimes if I realize I've done something wrong, it, it is hard to sort of fully own up to, right? I still feel defensive, you know, all that kind of thing. Um, so I wonder if you could just give us an, some, some of the elements of a good apology, like what makes for a good apology um, and then also, you know, how, how can you help us on, help us see some of the ways that abusers avoid that kind of good apology and what, what to kind of look for in the kind of the sorry, not sorry apologies. I do think it's difficult for anybody to apologize, sure. you know, to confess. It's a vulnerable thing yeah, you know, because yeah. you're putting yourself in a sense at the mercy of another person's acceptance and 
mm-hmm. you may not know how they're going to respond. Right. And, right. and beyond that, it's this, okay, I have to surrender my own need to defend myself, my own need to maintain yeah. an image. Right. So it, I think it's difficult yeah. for anybody. I, yes. And I, you know, I would just say at this point that um, I, what I try to make clear in the in the book is that an abusive individual who is seeking someone else's harm and is targeting others, they're going to demonstrate a pattern of tactics over time. Yeah. And so when they get to the point where they are being confronted and they don't have any defenses left, it's clear that this is true, you know, you are in the wrong, this happened, then they might offer an apology, not out of a place of sincerity and a desire to make amends, but because it's their only option. And and so they are still seeking to protect their image, but they realize that the best way to do that at this point is to wave a white flag of surrender and hope that people will accept that and back off hmm. and they can then continue going about doing their empire building. Right. So it's yeah. a concession, yeah. not an apology. So I just say that because yeah. I, I think that there are many, there are many instances in which someone might find themselves having a hard time apologizing, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're abusive, right? right. It's, right. It's, it's hard to do. Yeah. But I think when we find ourselves in that place where we recognize, okay, I have, I have uh, caused harm to somebody else mm-hmm. and, and I need to make that right. I think it starts with surrendering, right? And that's the mm-hmm. hardest part, I, I, I believe. It's surrendering, what I mean by that, surrendering all of these tactics, Right, surrendering right. this this need to defend yeah. and to promote right. and to maintain legitimacy. So right. you see that happening when somebody says, "You know, I'm sorry, um, but uh, I didn't mean to. This isn't who I am." Uh, right. Right. You know, so they can add all these tactics really kind of to day. their apology, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. So then the apology becomes about them right. very quickly. So that right. has to be surrendered. Okay. And then I think there needs to be an authentic you know, confession, which is, mm. which is stating what you know to be true about your behavior. Mm. And sometimes there needs to be a process that happens before that can be done well, because we, could, we only confess what we know to be true. Hmm. But that's where I think submission, you know, submitting to an outside party doing an assessment or submitting to um, even the, you know, the counsel of a friend who's saying, no, you know, this, this is what you did. And, you know, so there needs to be this submission to that precedes confession because we can only confess what we know to be true. And so a true confession, I think has to happen after somebody opens themselves up to, to, um, an awareness of all the ways in which they may have wronged somebody. So then after that confession, um, I think there needs to be some clear ownership. You know, I, I take complete responsibility for this. Mm. And then there needs to be a recognition of the impact. And and I think this is one of the Mm. missing pieces in a lot of uh, apologies and attempts to make amends is, you know, somebody might not, be willing to assess the impact because that's also difficult. Yes. Yeah. Right? Hmm. To, to face up to the consequences of your behavior, not the consequences mm-hmm. that you're f- facing, but the consequences of your behavior uh, for another person or a community. Yeah. And so I think that impact needs to be named as well. Mm-hmm. And then I think at the, at the end of going through a really thorough process of, apologizing of confessing and repenting and i think the expressions of empathy are a byproduct of that when you come face to face with your you're wrong and the impact that that has had and you've surrendered all of these defenses 
And I think as a byproduct, these expressions of, you know, I am, I am grieved, I am so sorry, they can then happen and they're not weightless, they're not meaningless because they've they've they are coming at the end of a true authentic expression of confession and repentance. Yeah. Yeah, just a couple of things, Wade, that I heard there that were so helpful to me. Uh, one is um, there's all these tactics to sort of distance oneself from the wrong you've done. You know, I had a bad day or that's not really who I am or that's not what I intended. There's minimizing what happened, right? Um, and then there's focusing on, again, myself as the person who caused the harm and the consequences that are coming upon me because of this versus focusing on the impact that you're behavior did on other people. Um, <clears throat> I remember uh, several years ago now, uh, um, this is a story that could be any number of dozens of pastors, but a famous pastor um, was had an affair with a woman in his congregation, cheated on his wife and kids, and a famous uh, CCM artist also had an affair um, and cheated on his wife with somebody else. And they both issued apologies, like public apologies around the same time. And uh, this is before really I had the kind of language that you spell out in this book so well and help name things. But I remember reading the pastor's apology and thinking, this is performative empathy. Like, oh, this is a, this is a performative mm. apology. Like, I, there's something false about it. I remember reading the CCM artist's apology and it just, there was no dressing it up. There was no, well, you know, we're all sinners and we all have our bad days and it was just like, I ruined my marriage and I hurt my wife and I was wrong and I'm sorry. And, and I just thought, gosh, the, the courage and the grace it takes to do that seems to be in short supply, right? It seems like we have a really hard time just telling the truth about ourselves to other people mm-hmm. to repair wrongs that we've done. Um, and um just one other thing, I was I was in a situation today with a fr- uh, not today, but uh, this week with a friend, and she messaged me and she's like, "Hey, you did this, you said this thing, and it hurt me." And I realized uh, when we had a conversation that I have all these unhelpful ways of not apologizing <laughs> that live in my body, right? Like deflecting, uh, even like low key gaslighting. Right. Um, meaning, meaning telling this person, you have no right to be hurt by what I said, because uh, my intentions were pure or mm-hmm. it's your fault. You misunderstood me or uh, you're too sensitive, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and so uh, I think I think the work you've done in this book and that you've helped kind of name, begin to name here, but you unpack more thoroughly in your book is so helpful. Like if we can just learn how to apologize. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, That'd that, be a good goal. Yeah. <laughs> um, good tactic. Yeah. Uh, I guess, uh, wait, maybe maybe moving forward, I, I know your work uh, with Pelly said, like you're working with organizations and individuals, and this book was written two years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, wh- what are some of the things that you're learning as you listen to people's stories of abuse? Mm-hmm. What are some of the things that you are, that, that are, that you feel like you want to research more, study more, learn more about as you engage in real-time uh, situations of abuse? I, th- I think one of the things that I'm finding in so many situations is a, a gripping and paralyzing fear. Mm. And there are roots, I think, that need to be unearthed in order for us to understand where that fear is coming from so that when somebody sees something, when they experience something, there is a freedom to say, they, you know, this isn't right. Even freedom to say, I don't know exactly what this is, but there's a caution in me. And, and, and if I don't say something, um, I just I know things are going to get worse. So I'm going to say something, mm. but people aren't doing that because 
it seems as if there's this impression that they have that that's not going to go well. And, mm-hmm. and there, there is this fear that I think is present in many of our cultures and institutional environments. And, and, and where, where is that coming from? What's, what's producing that fear? I don't think it's, see, this is where some of the gaslighting comes in, where somebody might say, well, the fear is in the person who isn't assertive enough, who isn't courageous enough to, mm. to say something. Now, I think the fear is in the, is in the structure and in oh, the yeah. policies oh, and yeah. in the culture that's being produced by the leadership at the top. Yeah. And so I'd like to just un- understand more of, 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 of what is producing so much fear in our Christian environments. Yeah. I would too. That yeah. sounds like a great next book, Wade. Yeah. <laughs> what are we what are we afraid of? What are we afraid of? I think I, go ahead, Ben. Yeah. I, I think that I, I just I appreciate you naming that the fear underneath all of this stuff because I think w- when you first I mean there, there's fear in people who are experiencing abuse are afraid, right? There, there's that, there's, there is fear there um, of, you know, what are the consequences to my livelihood or my reputation if I speak out, you know, that kind of thing. But what, one of the things that was so helpful for me was recognizing that everything that was driving the abusive behavior that I see or that I'm experiencing is deep, deep fear. And I, I don't know why, I guess I don't know why that was so helpful for me, but I, I think it, it made abusive people and abusive systems seem less powerful and scary to me. It made them sort of, it revealed them as fragile and very human. And, you know, and so, I don't know, it, it, it helped me to sort of right-size the person, sort of right-size the, the, the system a bit to say, Oh, this is just a fragile person who who yeah. has not learned how afraid they are, and they they're just running. They've been running their whole lives, probably, mm-hmm. from facing up to who they are, and yeah. and you know, I don't know. There's something about that that was uh, helpful and healing for me. Just noticing that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm thinking too, Wade. Like, uh, if if we're not going to have institutions and systems that are shaped by fear. Mm-hmm. then how do we how do we cultivate ecosystems that are healthy mm-hmm. that lead to to mutual flourishing and joy uh, yeah. knowing the things that make for peace even yeah, yeah. you know um i wonder if you have thoughts about that like in in conversations that you've had um what are what are some practices that you've seen contribute to sort of uh becoming like immune or allergic to abuse? Um, I'd like to see more attention being given to how leaders are selected Mm. and trained Mm. and the systems that surround those processes and perhaps even prior to selection is how leaders are how leaders are are identified um and sometimes there's a self-identification you know and Hmm. it going i guess what i'm saying is going going to the very beginning because i do think then to echo some of what i think you're sharing is that there are individuals who are moving into these spaces of authority and they themselves are filled with fear and insecurity yes and the position becomes like a lifeline to them yeah you know like to use the image of america american ninja warrior where they <laughs> want to make this leap and they think that grabbing onto this rope is going to get them to the other side, but they cling to that like a lifeline. And it's that position or it's that, that role. It's the, it's the preaching before a crowd. It's the writing a book. It's the, it's all of this stuff that 
gives them this sense of life that perhaps is an antidote to the fear and the insecurity that they've yes. grown up with and they haven't dealt yes. with. Wow. And, yep. and I, I think in too many places we're, we're letting such individuals grab onto that lifeline and we're cheering that on mm-hmm. and, and letting that person just flounder then and cause so much damage to themselves and others. Mm-hmm. And we're not doing that work that I think needs to be done to protect our churches and people from unhealthy individuals, usually men, getting into positions of power that they shouldn't be in. And and, and that's where I feel a little bit out of my depth because then you begin to talk about um, the psychology of the, of the person who's in that position of power and the issues of, family origin. And but th- yeah. that's where I think the work again of Diane Langberg and psych- yeah. psychologists and Chuck DeGroat are just, are just really helpful. And I'd like to see more and more churches becoming educated about kind of that, that. And then how do we, how do we change the way in which we're yeah. identifying, selecting training leaders and how do we restructure maybe our our governance and our organizations so that everything isn't just centered around a single individual who might be in a position of power in order to meet some need that they have. And so then it's the opposite of love, right? So then they're they're not in a position to actually love people because they're, they're not sacrificing themselves for, for the good of others. They're sacrificing other people in order to meet some unmet, yeah, need that they have. So, I I think that's really uh, key and really important because I think there is a two two things about that 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 strike me. One, I think now that we're just sort of waking up to some of these things, it's sort of like we're surprised every time uh, someone you know is you know, a new accusation comes out or an abusive system sort of is revealed. We're sort of like, where? Who would have guessed? You know, who knew that this was coming? Um, and I, I like the approach of saying, actually, maybe 20 years ago, we could have seen this coming. And mm-hmm. this person who was so eager to volunteer for this and this and this, maybe there, there should have been some wise guidance to say, hey, maybe that's not the best thing for you right now. Maybe instead, you know, try therapy, you know, or, you know, like, like that, <laughs> that kind of uh, little, yeah. little bit of a redirect. Mm-hmm. Because I think the other thing is that... Um, Abusive people are not sort of born. They don't just sort of emerge and they're not, they're not sort of just that way. You know what I mean? It's not like we're just weeding out, oh, there's a certain kind of person that is an abusive person. And we need to make sure that they don't get anywhere near. I mean, that, that is true. But I think there's also some hope here in the sense that someone who's just starting out in ministry, for example, who might grow into an abusive person if they're continually rewarded for abusive behavior we could maybe nip that in the bud and maybe they could find some healing and maybe they could become a, a wise, loving, spiritual leader, you know, 20 years from now, rather than yeah. the, you know, the train wreck. So I love that yeah. approach. Yeah. Wait, that's, that's basically uh, why we started gravity leadership. True. Oh, great. Yeah. <laughs> we, I mean, we, we realized that, that we needed, um, we needed to, do intentional work mm-hmm. to dismantle and oppose the prevailing leadership paradigms at work in mm-hmm. white Western Christianity, because the ones that we had adopted and just assumed were good, were leading, we're not creating cultures of goodness. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so we appreciate you coming on here. Appreciate the work that you're doing. Yeah. Um, and appreciate this book that uh, is excellent. Maybe, maybe by way of closing, what, what do you, if someone's listening right now and they, they have experienced abuse, um, not even in the, not only in the church, but maybe with a partner or from parents, um, or from friends, what, what are, what are one or two things that people can begin to do to reckon with that, uh, hurt or harm they've experienced and take steps towards healing? Yeah, if I if I keep it to one to two things, I I would suggest starting with 
doing some kind of inventory work. And, and so that might be something that somebody does just on their own um, by writing you know, their story down, or if that's difficult using prompts like, you know, I, you know, I was hurt when, and then just, you know, list mm-hmm. doing that inventory work. Um, and that is really difficult. Um, and in some cases might be too difficult for someone to do. And so I think then another thing that I would recommend is finding you know, somebody who has insight and, you know, preferably a trauma-informed mental health professional, a therapist who can listen and then help disentangle, you know, all of the, all of the threads that are knotted together, because that's often kind of what, what you're looking at. It's just a, Hey, I don't even know where to begin. I don't know how to make sense of this. Um, it's difficult to, to begin a process like that, but if there's somebody who can, who can help, help with that, if somebody, if you can get to a point where you can make sense of the situation, yeah. I think that's important because then that can bring validation. It can yeah. help you, it can help you say, no, I'm not, I'm not irrational. Yeah. I'm not making things up. I'm not dreaming or yeah. Now I understand why I've been so anxious because I've been in an environment that is so filled with fear and anybody would be anxious in such an environment. Or now I know why I'm so angry because of all this that has happened. I I can see it on, on a piece of paper and everybody ought to be angry. Any normal person would be angry if they went through this. So it can just be very validating then once you've been able to make sense of what happened, it can bring a lot of affirmation. Mm, Yeah. That's huge. It's huge because uh, we, we tend to look for, we tend to look for any other explanation other than this is abuse often. And uh, that just serves to perpetuate um, abusive situations. Mm -hmm. Uh, Wade, if, if people are listening and they want to learn more about Pellicid and the work you do, where can they go to find that out? I do have a website, wadetmullen.com. And I do post some on Twitter. I haven't been on there lately, but um, I do post on Twitter and I have a sub stack where I, again, I haven't been keeping up well with that too, but I'm trying to get back to creating more content. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's where folks can find me. Yeah. Well, uh, if I could just give a personal, uh, I, I, I actually had a chance to read a report that you did for an assessment or an investigation you did for a friend of mine who's a, who's a pastor. And uh, I was blown away, Wade, at the thoroughness and the carefulness and the sensitivity mm-hmm. uh, and the wisdom. And so I, I appreciate the work you're doing. There's, I mean, I, I'm sure you, uh, you could stay busy 24 hours, seven days a week for the next 30 years, the amount of um, stuff we have to dig out of. But uh, thank you for the work you're doing. Thank you for this book. Uh, again, it's called Something's Not Right, Decoding the Hidden Tactics of Abuse and Freeing Yourself from Its Power. Wade, thanks for being with us today. Thanks, Matt and Ben. It's an honor, honor to be on the show with you. Thanks. So a new monk comes into the monastery and notices the other monks copying manuscripts. They show him how to do it. He does it for a few years. Something about it, though, bothers him. So he goes to the abbot. He says, why do we copy manuscripts from copies of manuscripts? If someone makes a mistake, we would just be replicating the mistake. Why don't we make copies from the original? And the abbot says, we've been doing it this way for centuries, but you make a good point. So the abbot goes down to the caverns under the monastery and finds where the original manuscript is kept in a clay jar and takes it out. And hours later, the whole monastery uh, hears the abbot uh, down there. Uh, and the, 
as he's looking at the original manuscript. And they hear wailing and crying and smashing. And the young monk goes down there and finds him beating his head against the wall. And the monk asks, what's wrong, father? And the abbot says, the word is celebrate. Ben, do you have a sound effect that goes "don't"? Uh, I don't. I don't think so. Okay, I don't well. think so. I think all I've got is cheesy laughter. Mm, no, don't do it. That no, that would hurt Drum one or roll. two. One or two of my feelings. Yeah, cheering, clapping. Anyway, Wade, that's all I got. That was a yeah. homage to you and your excellent interview. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Until next time, listener. That was, good. that was a good joke. Yeah. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. If you're finding it helpful, we'd love it if you tell your friends about it. Ratings and reviews online also help others find the podcast. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. You can join our Gravity community for free. You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox, as well as an email most Fridays with curated links to articles that we found interesting or helpful. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com slash join. Our show is produced by Ben Sturkey and Matt Tebby. Aaron Sturkey edits and mixes the podcast. You can check out his work at aaronsturkey.com. We'd love to hear from you. To record a question or comment for us, go to gravityleadership.com slash message and click the Start Recording button. You can also email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. Catch you next time. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.